Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajisad, and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, it's time for you to get acquainted with a typical feature that we have on this podcast called Ben plugs his his publication. This is not a feature. This is something you do as an introduction. It's not like we roll out some music and and make a big deal out of it. Well, that's because our our production quality is just so. I mean, we something is tying up all of the budget. I don't really know what it is. We will not you know. discuss Project Arcturus in a public <laughs> setting. Anyways, Ben, why don't you tell the listeners, new and old, where they can find your work? You can find my writing at Motor Trend, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. And you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as TechSpot and Nouveau Magazine. Ben, let's talk cars this week. What do you think? Sounds good. Let's break um, break the mold. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we're straying too far from the usual formula now, but I want to talk about a car that you've been driving recently. And um, I have it written down in my notes here that you have lots to say about it. So... Uh, Sammy finally gave me the chance to drive the Toyota Supra. He's been driving it pretty much nonstop for the last 18 months. And every time I tried to book the Supra to get behind the wheel, they're like, oh, sorry, Sammy Hadjassad has that car for another two years. And I don't know if I caught you on a bad day or something, but I finally managed to snag a week with the Supra of my own. And um, it's interesting. We've talked about the Supra on the show in the past because, as I've mentioned, Sammy's driven it so many times. Uh, but the version that you drove, Sammy, was the original version, right? The 2020 version of the car. That's right. And I, I need to be clear here. I have not driven the car for 18 months straight. I've driven it twice. Uh, one as a pre-production and one as a production version of the car. Um, I, I, at the time, I think I was one of the very few people who had driven it, uh, so many times. So that's it. But the, the car I drove was like the first iteration of it. And I think it's received some tweaks over the years. Sure. Uh, if by tweaks you mean a massive power boost from the first year to the second year, I think it was something like, what, uh, 50 horsepower, maybe more? At least. Because so, to make a long story short, the version of the Super I drove has the the uh, most powerful engine that they've installed in it. It's, the, the three, it's still the three liter that they borrowed from BMW, and we're going to get into that in a second. But it has 382 horsepower and 368 pound-feet of torque. When this first happened, when the news of this came out, I remember we were talking about how pissed off we would be if we had bought a Supra, especially if we paid more for like a launch edition or whatever. And then a year later, the same car was available at the same price for a lot more power. Um, mm-hmm. And I can tell you that this power is pretty awesome. So if you waited to buy your Supra, that was the smooth move. Sam, I'm sorry that your Supra doesn't have this much power, although I'm sure you've taken care of that uh, in other ways if you're listening out there. Um, in any case, the Supra is a super weird car, Sammy. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned one of the weird parts about it, but only in a very uh, small in a, in a very small scale. You mentioned the powertrain, which is from BMW, but I don't think that at, that that doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. No, the whole know, car is like from BMW. Yeah, you know what else is from BMW? The interior, the <laughs> infotainment, the platform itself. Uh, it's not even built by BMW, though, It's or Toyota. It's farmed out to a third party in Graz, Austria. It's uh, Magna Steyr. I never say that right. 
Um, yeah, but it's not like Magna is just some like offshoot. They make some pretty impressive cars. No, but what I want to emphasize is that the Toyota Supra is a Toyota that was designed by a second party and then built by a third party <laughs> before it ended back up in a Toyota dealership. The, what Toyota did with this car, what they're most responsible for, and there was a point where BMW split their design um, away from the Supra. So BMW makes a version of this car called the Z4. It doesn't have a roof. Everything else is the same mechanically. Uh, but when that split happened, Toyota took over on styling and they took over on t- tuning the chassis and the suspension. But things like you know hip point in the car and which drivetrains would be used, and, you know, the, the wheelbase and all that stuff, that was all decided basically by BMW when they came up with the platform. So it's it's not really a Toyota, it's not really a BMW, but it's more BMW than anything else, I would say. Okay, that's that's fair. Um, the, the question... First of all, I think we should put we should put that conversation aside for now, if we can. And I want to know what your experience was like driving. Because first of all, I drove it in in, in Europe and, and the U.S. I put it on track, um, I, and in warm weather. I have never driven it in in cold weather or winter weather, which is what I imagine that you had had been spending time with it. Not to mention winter tire, right? Winter yeah. Tires. So I had it during the darkest depths of winter. So uh, last week of February up here in Montreal. Temperatures were really cold in Celsius, like minus 12, minus 15. Uh, And during the same week, we swung from below zero to above zero. So I got to drive it during a thaw out as well as a deep freeze. Uh, the tires, I, they bear mentioning, they are Pirelli Sato Zeros, the absolute worst winter tire on the market. No question. I mean, for a high-end car, I don't mean like, you know, super cheap tires that are obviously going to suck. But... um, Pirelli tires, their winter winter rubber simply does not work in snow or slush. It just, just doesn't. It's designed to work on clear, dry pavement that happens to be cold. And even then, it's not great. So uh, I had a lot of snow to deal with at certain parts of my week. And I thought this was an interesting chance to test out a rear-wheel drive sports car in an environment where most people probably wouldn't consider using it. Uh, in general... The Super did pretty well in the snow, Sammy, except the tires were so bad that there were points where it was really a question of uh, maintaining momentum. As long as you did that, you were okay. But in in the alley behind my house, trying to park was really difficult because, you know, I had to obviously stop and do a 90-degree turn to get into my parking spot in front of my garage. And as soon as I did that and tried to get through slush or snow, it was just, it was terrible. I ended up leaving the car in front of the house more often than not. Um, okay, so enough about the the practical elements of it. What was it like to drive for you? Did you you know imagine first of all, the the winter performance would have been improved if you had a, if you had a, a real set of winter tires. Right? I think like so. That, okay. I think so. The car's still fairly low though, so you got to keep that into account. But I discovered that for me, I, I've been really curious about the Supra, and at the same time, kind of not that interested because of the weird, um, I guess BMW aspects of the car. Like I. I We'll talk about it later on, but it was hard for me to understand why this vehicle existed in the form that it did. But when I spent time with it, and I did drive it a lot, uh, I discovered basically the car had two personalities. Um, Driving it around town on a daily basis, even on the highway, you know, just doing your errands, your commute, it does not feel all that special. Hmm. It It's fine. It's perfectly competent. It's uh, really, really quick. 
the the that engine from BMW that that straight six engine, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's 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 there's it's really hard to overstate how smooth the power delivery from that motor is. The eight speed automatic transmission from that motor, uh, paired with that motor too, is really really good at figuring things out in a performance setting and just in a daily driving setting. Uh, it's by far my most favorite part of the car, which is problematic because it has nothing to do with Toyota. <laughs> like <laughs> the best part of the Supra is something that they had zero involvement with um so aside from the styling the car is doesn't feel special day to day the looks of the car attract a ton of attention like i had people pulling up beside me on the highway and like gesturing like fools and like being super excited and coming up to me and talking about the car in parking lots uh, it, it really attracts a lot of attention and i think part of that is because people aren't expecting to see that kind of car outside of winter either so like it kind of it just amps up the profile of the vehicle Okay. Yeah. And uh, but other than that, I I mean if that's democratic to me. When you see a car, when people are excited about the car, it means the car is doing something right. Sure. Sure. Why I mean, not? Well, the, the Supra. I mean, styling styling wise, it's a car that's polarizing. I think because it's not classically beautiful. Like, there's nothing about its proportions that really kind of you don't look at it and go wow that's a design that's really going to stand the test of time you look at it and you're either like okay i can get down with this or that's hideous like those are the two i think very extreme poles that the supra generates visually um i don't think it's ugly but it has a lot of creases and folds and angles and bulges you know like there's a lot going on so you have to be into that and i think there are certain colors where it looks a lot better than others like i don't think it's a i don't think it's a beautiful car but i do think it looks good in certain colors okay the um, the, the interior though sammy doesn't look yes. good at all oh no <laughs> what did you think of the interior um i i don't think the interior stood out in any particular way i think it reminded me a lot about a bmw uh, of a bmw um, my biggest complaint at the time was it was very tight, especially with a helmet on. Yeah, I so there's so many BMW elements in the in the car. It uses iDrive, uh, which isn't labeled as such, but it has the rotary knob, and it's 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 essentially BMW's iDrive system. the The thing that surprised me most about the interior was how plain it felt. The everything is functional and it looks okay. But there's nothing special about it. Again, it's it. You really feel like you're just getting into here's another car, and the gauge cluster. It's very simple. It has you know uh, attack, uh, speed speedometer readout, and then these two kind of straight up and down. Well, they're angled, but they're just vertical bars for like fuel and engine temperature. There's no like cool LCD thing going on. There's no um like a, a augmented reality link to the navigation system there's no a crazy head up display doing all sorts of cool stuff it's very very basic and this is i had the top tier premium trim version of the car as well which retails for about 55 grand and i was just not impressed by the feature set it it felt like every other car i'd been in recently and it didn't feel luxurious or special or cool and i think that's kind of a problem for a halo car like the supra yeah that is that is a significant issue but I think worth bringing up then is all of this BMW-ness to it all, right? Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people appreciate in a, in a Toyota is like solid build quality. And I don't think you don't get that in a BMW, but you did notice – I think you mentioned to me that you did notice some a few 
mishaps or, or issues in terms of well, I uh, had a quality, con- right? I had a constant squeaking and um, uh, shaking noise from the cargo cover at the back. I had the same problem with the Toyota Venza that we talked about last week. It's right. just it, – it's one of those covers. It's not – properly attached it slides into kind of a groove and i guess when it gets cold outside the plastic shrinks and it rattles and it was really annoying and i could not get it to stop i guess the solution really is to just take the cargo cover out which will give you a lot more space in the hatch anyway but then you have to worry about theft and sun damage and all that kind of stuff so you know it's not the best solution okay and now let's start talking about that bmw-ness to it so the car sounds like a bmw it, it, the motor feels like a BMW, and that's a good thing. Those two, I think those two elements kind of go, go hand in hand. And it does sound very good. You're right. Like in sport uh, mode, it, it, the, the exhaust, I don't know how fake it is inside the cabin, but it, it does sound nice. The interior feels like a very Spartan BMW, like a really low rent or budget BMW, I think kind, is what I'm saying. Kind of. And, and like you mentioned, the roof is very low. The, the windows yeah. and the sides are slits. They're just slits. The windshield isn't much bigger, and the view out the hatch is tiny. So if you're the, the – I really noticed this when I was wearing my winter coat inside the vehicle. Uh, it takes – you know, you're wearing a puffy coat. It takes up a lot of space. I started to feel claustrophobic, which is rare. I, I mean I'm a former Miata owner, and I'm not a very big person. So I was surprised by how tight the car felt. If I took my jacket off and I just drove like in a hoodie um, and I took my boots off and I wore street shoes – it felt a lot more comfortable. So it's not really it, – it's it's weird in the sense that it kind of straddles the line between grand touring and pure sports car. I don't really think it's either of those things, although it leans more to the GT side of things. But uh, that interior, if you're going to put a lot of miles on it, there's not a lot of space to stretch out and relax, especially if you have a passenger. Right. I'm curious about why you say it leans towards the GT side of things just because it doesn't have a manual? It doesn't have a manual transmission. I guess that's part of it. But also, it doesn't really feel like a focused sports car to me. That's too bad. I really did enjoy it on the track. And maybe the tires or the settings make a a big difference as to to showcase what the capability is. But I I did take it on some very, very challenging roads. That gets to me. I mentioned it has two personalities. So Mm -hmm. once I got out of the city... And I went up north to uh, some of the, the two lanes that go through the mountains that are, that are just outside. Well, it's about an hour, hour and a half outside of Montreal. And um, they're really challenging and they're fun. And some of them were covered with uh, rock salt and, and um, gravel to deal with the snow. Some of them were completely clear. Some of them were snowed over. So I had a lot of different environments to sample the Super in. And what I discovered is it's a very, very stiff car. <laughs> Very, very, very stiff to the point where some rough pavement had me bouncing so much. I was, I was shouting out loud. Like it was really surprising to me in, in with the suspension set to the sport mode. Um, I assume it has an adaptive suspension, Sammy. Yeah, I believe it does. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the funnier parts of the car because I think it feels stiff. And then the sport mode is like, oh, you want to, you want to hear stiff? You want to feel. Yeah. Stiff yeah. It's now? almost like a challenge. It's like, can you handle <laughs> yeah. this sport mode? But I really liked how the transmission acted. This is the thing. So I want to get more into that aspect of the car. Once it's driven very quickly in, in a, in a concentrated manner, once you're actually driving instead of just commuting, the car is a lot more enjoyable. Um, I, I again, it really does feel more like a grand touring car than a pure sports car to me. Uh, I think there's a little bit of insulation going on. The steering is okay. Like, it, I don't have a problem with it, but it didn't feel particularly engaging. But again, that drivetrain just makes up for so much. It's it's so quick. 
and it's really, really easy to control with your right foot. Um, you don't really need the paddle shifters. The transmission is very good at staying on top of whether you're going up and down a hill or whether you're in mid-corner and all that. Um, I, I enjoyed driving it quickly. I enjoyed driving it in anger, I guess you could say. Uh, but it at the end of that, I never really felt like, oh, I wish I had another week with it. You know, I, I never really made a strong connection with the car. Uh, we didn't develop a bond of any kind. And mm-hmm. the whole experience of driving it quickly really made me think of a BMW. It really kind of felt like the general generic BMW package shrunken down to a supersize and slapped with a slightly more affordable price tag and then with all the luxury stuff removed, you know? So the personality of the car is kind of hard to figure out from that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Something you said I really want to get into a little bit more because I don't even know the the right response to it, but the cars that you have built a connection with, a car that you will miss when you return it, do you have any off the top of your head that really stood out to you? I really like the Cayman uh, sports cars, like oh, the Cayman, yeah. the Alpha 4C. I mean, those are really cool sports cars. The BRZ is a really cool sports car that I think mm-hmm. about a lot more than I'll ever think about the Supra. And um, for me, one of the vehicles that really does stand out is a problem to the Supra, I think. It's the M2, the BMW M2, which I think is a better product overall. It's it's and I think it's a I think it's a it's a buy it's a it's an example of an old BMW uh, or an old example of BMW of what we expect from that automaker. And it really does deliver in terms of that that connection. And it feels good in every way. Yeah, uh, I think the, BM- the M2 is a, is a really good um, indicator – or sorry, a really good uh, comparator to this car. Let, let's kind of go through – what you get with the M2 that you don't get with the Supra. So the most ex- the most expensive Supra is like fifty five grand, and right now the competition coupe version of the M2 is fifty eight grand. So that's okay, not so a big difference. Three thousand dollar difference. Okay, you're, you're getting a back seat that you could use every once in a while, or if you can't use it, you end up using it to, to store stuff. Which in the Supra you don't have really anywhere to store stuff. You can throw it in the back in the hatch and have it roll around. Or you also could, that hatch has the narrowest, the weirdest. It's the most awkward shape opening, right? Like it's a very like narrow and it's vertical. super heavy. It's supr- <laughs> no, it's surprising when you close it, it yeah. shakes the car, right? And that really surprised me. And I remember I was at the pharmacy with my partner, and I, I left her in the car to run in and get something. And I had to put when I came back, I put it in the in the hatch because there's nowhere else to put it. <laughs> And I closed it, and the whole car shook. And I was like, "How loud must that have been for her inside?" You know, that's really funny because, in comparison, in the FRS, for example, I believe it has an aluminum trunk. And every time my wife like closes the trunk, she like slams it like with the full F, like she she throws it down like it's a luxury car. It's just like bam, and I'm like, "Holy cow, that's <laughs> that's terrifying." Are you what do well, you what do you know, have against the car? She doesn't know her own strength. <laughs> yes. um, so not only do you get a back seat with the M2, you also get the option of a manual transmission. And it's oh a, my god, that makes the whole difference. It's a good manual I would pay transmission. Thousand dollars for that. <laughs> you also get a nicer interior with better materials. No uh, slightly. Slightly. No, there's no, there's no question in my mind. It's, 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 it feels much more obs- It feels much more fifty-eight thousand dollars than the super feels fifty-five thousand dollars. I okay, think. Sure. It feels like it's more worth that money. Okay. But let's also talk about another car that's all roughly the same price as the M2, and that's the Corvette C8. Oh no! Do we really have to? So it's the C8 is the end of every sports car discussion. 
from last year to this year, right? If like, you, that's it. Yeah, if you pay $5,000 more, you get 100 more horsepower in a mid-engine package. Now, I'm not a big Mid-engine C8. package, two more cylinders. Yeah, I'm not a big C8 fan, but it's it's definitely a better sports car than the Supra. And it's so are also you saying pro- you're more of a C8 fan than you are a Supra, a Supra fan? I'm not a Supra fan at all. Okay, um, so I th- sounds like, yes. <laughs> I don't dislike the Supra, but I'm not a fan. I think that the, the Corvette is a better grand touring car and a better sports car than the Supra is. The Supra is a puzzle to me. I don't get it. I don't get why you take all the heritage you have in that name and then let someone else determine what that car is going to be for your customers. And you can say all you want about how much work they put into tuning the suspension. Okay, I get it, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a Toyota because there's no other Toyota on the market that's even remotely close to what this car's mission statement is. And it certainly doesn't feel like an FRS or GT86, I should say, um, which is the closest thing that Toyota offers to this which vehicle. Which is injected with person, which has personality, right? And like again, another car that it built in partnership with another company. But so, at least the other company, like when you when you take a look at an 86 and a BRZ, that's... Those are weird cars for both of the companies, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, not but... a lot of product, there's not a lot of pieces in those cars that make you, that remind you of a Subaru Impreza or Forester. But there? in terms in terms of a driving experience, the GT86 is much better. Wow. I think that I, I I'm not saying the Supra's is bad, but I'm saying that if it was my money, I would definitely buy a GT86 instead. No question. You're saying you would rather have that – there's like two, almost 200 horse, horsepower difference between the two. Yeah. And all of the grip in the Supra – I mean I experienced it with grip in the summer. I'm not sure how you felt with the grip with your dud winter tires. Um, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting statement because I've driven the two back-to-back and I – every time I've done that, every time I, I revisit that conversation, I say to myself, they're just two different cars with two different – like personalities and 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 markets, the the Supra felt focused for for a sporty vehicle, while the '86 was like a, a like a toy, like a really felt like a like a car that was meant to put a smile on your face, which well, is a very good thing for a car. I think that the '86 is a driver's car, and the Supra yeah. is not. And yeah, okay. I think that the Supra disguises that by giving you a lot of horsepower, and it's fun to play with the horsepower, but the overall experience is not memorable. It's not it doesn't stand out from the pack. It's not like it's not like the Supra really defines the segment. Whereas I think the the GT eighty six, there's nothing else like it at that price point. And there's very it's an little MX five, I suppose, right? Yeah, but it, the MX five doesn't have a roof. So that again, you end up in a different in a different segment. It doesn't have a back seat. Um I think even if you spend a lot more money, it's hard to get something like the GT eighty six. I think the the three seventy Z comes closest. Cayman. Uh, yeah, but the the Cayman is a mid-engine car, so you know it's it's again it's a different driving experience. So, so like that's what you end up having is this car that that defines itself with itself, right? It, like, it tries what, to define itself based on a heritage that it no longer follows, right. and that's and weird it, to me. It's so bizarre. I, I'm starting to see your your perspective more and more clearly. Is that the Supra only com- like? defined etched out this really weird space for itself at that price point you can get more horsepower you can get more engaged driving uh uh, more engaged driving feel you can get more space or more practicality um you you can can get get a more interesting vehicle overall you can get an audi s5 you can get an infinity q60 red sport these are two-door cars that have back seats they're usable on a day-to-day basis they're both way more comfortable and they're just as quick i think 
Although the driving experience is not going to be as good in terms of sheer handling, like the smaller Supra is going to, you know, hand both those cars their butts on, on mm-hmm. a racetrack. But 90% of people will never experience that, that scenario in any of those three cars. So mm-hmm. it's it's like, even if you forget about the M2, there are non-sporty two-door coupes out there that I think offer uh, an interesting counterpoint to the Supra because the Supra is so scattered in terms of what it actually is. So what would have been better if it, if it focused on one thing in particular, whether it was engagement, hopefully it should have been engagement or, or lightweight, um, or if they had gone the other direction, made it super powerful or something. Well, they can't go lightweight because they already have that car. Historically, the Supra has never been a lightweight car. It's always been a large, powerful car. I mean, it was yeah. often a luxury model for Toyota. But if it's going to be a luxury model, make it a luxury model. It, it, this is not a luxury car. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's where they – I think that's where they got mixed up because I think the Supra has this um, reputation of being a, a modding uh, – a, a car in the modding community or the aftermarket. And there was something about that that they really wanted to catch. And I don't know if they've caught it yet. I don't know if the that – is I don't think it's resonating with the aftermarket. I haven't seen or heard much about it yet. Well, you just go to the BMW aftermarket. I mean, why not? But then again, why wouldn't you just get a BMW? Exactly. It's a, it's that that is a compelling argument against super ownership. That's tough. That's a really poor place for them to be. And I don't know. Unlike other, like when whenever we have look when we have a, a discussion about the eighty six and the question is it needs more power or needs more grip or something. Um, or it needs to be cheaper. Who knows what? We have a salute. We have a we have an idea of what could make the car perfect for for whatever the buyer might be. For me, with the Supra, you either like it or you don't. And if you don't like it, there's no solution. There's no fixing it. There's nothing like there that will be rectified. And right? and this is a super low volume car for Toyota too. They sold just under six thousand last year. Yeah. That's and, not and before before people start, you know, thinking, oh, maybe it was a pandemic and and car sales are down. The only car sales that are down are lower priced car sales. I think something like car sales between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars went up like ninety one percent last year. So yeah, the, the, the super cars went up. The super's in a at a price point where if you have you know, you know if you were unaffected by the pandemic financially. Um, it's appealing to you because it's, it's, it's aimed at that demographic. And if you wanted to buy it, you could afford to buy it. I don't think there are people who are being frozen out of super ownership in, in 2020. So, and, and this year so far, they've sold like 900, which is, which is not great in the first couple no. months of the year. So I think it's going to continue to be a, a low volume vehicle. And it's not like the it's not like Nissan and the Titan where it's like a bunch of dealers who don't know how to sell the product, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's like this is a sports car. You you either want it or you don't. Yeah, um, I, I think it was always fated to be low volume, but like, hmm. I I think it's a it's a really good conversation. I really do enjoy these kinds of conversations because they they present a, a really look. There are some cars that you you will you will just love, uh, and there's some cars that you just hate. And some vehicles that are that are in the middle, but this one is so difficult to get that that right feel for. And what would make me feel good about it? It just isn't there, right? Like that solution, that answer. Maybe not yet. Um, it's it's a car that it was really hard to connect you know, with it. That's what you said. You know, connect with it, but also like understand. <sighs> is it me, Sammy? Like I feel like there are more and more cars. I just don't. I just don't think about when I get out of them. 
I don't know. I don't think it's you. I do think that there are there are still good cars in the it, it, like new cars. Uh, I do know that there is there. You might be going. I, what do you think you're going through like a burnout of cars or something, Ben? Do we have to change this podcast? To I something just think else? <laughs> maybe maybe my my personal tastes are like shifting away so far from where the market's heading that I'm I'm just no longer relevant. <laughs> I, guess I, I don't know about that. I do remember how excited you got about that new Blackwing. Um, the, so those will, that will be exciting. Those new Cadillacs, and I, I'll talk about that in a moment. But um, I think there's there's more on the way. Um, and for example, we we discussed a little bit about that new. Uh, Nissan's uh, Z Proto, which sounds really cool too. Um, I think we should be we should see what's happening next. All right. Well, speaking of what's happening next, let's move on from the Supra and talk about what you've been driving recently. Uh, I've I have a difficult time discussing this car because it is a Cadillac. It is the CT4, and unlike previous discussions we've had about the CT4, this is not the V or the Blackwing. It is just your normal. Cadillac CT4, which is an entry-level product for the brand and should be a good representation of what the brand has at the higher end. I mean, I, that's, that's to me, is it, it is such an important... Um, you need to make a strong impression with your entry-level vehicles. And I thought, you know, if you look back at Mercedes and BMW with the C-Class and the 3 Series, they've always been able to make a very strong impression yeah, with yes, those products. But those are no longer the entry-level for Mercedes and BMW. So if you go yeah. one step down and you look at the 2 Series Grand Coupe and the CLA, you Which start are to not see... Super, and the A-Class in some, in some markets, right? Yeah. There's also the A-Class. So you see some stumbling there in terms of, like, not representing really what the brand is all about. So... When it comes to Cadillac, I will say the CT4 steps above the CLA in the in the 2 Series Grand Coupe. It is a little bit more representative of what you can expect in the other products, especially the CT5, which is a pretty solid product. Um, and, of course, the big daddy of the, of the brand, I think, is the Escalade. Um, as you both, both you and I have driven it recently and came away pretty impressed with what that vehicle has to offer, right? And and we, we I've driven the V version of the CT4. Um, I haven't driven the regular version, so I'm really curious to see, like, once you don't have the extra power and suspension tuning to kind of gloss over other things about the car that might not be as great, how it comes across to you. Okay, so this is the most difficult thing. I think we've had this discussion before. Um, the powertrain is the one that we need to talk about. This is the one element we really need to talk about in the... Um, in the CT4. Okay? Okay, I'm ready. I'm here. I'm captive. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I have this 2.7 liter four-cylinder engine. Okay. And I believe we've discussed this engine before in the past as a truck engine. Yes, from the Silverado. Right. It is the same engine. So I do have the V-Series engine. Okay, but it's detuned. But it's detuned by, I think, 15 horsepower. 15? 30 horsepower and 30 pound-feet of torque. That's it? That's it. 30 pound-feet is a lot. Yeah, I guess. I'm talking I have 310 horsepower and 350 pound-feet of torque. Okay. Okay? I have an all-wheel drive system and I have a 10-speed automatic. Okay. I'm going to tell you without question that this powertrain is the – is the most disappointing part of the of the vehicle. And and is it for the same reasons that I felt that way where basically it just doesn't rev and you kind of you're kind of always stuck in a low revving there's lots of torque but not a lot of fun kind of zone? 
Not exactly. Um, mainly because I had a, I think I had different expectations of it as a non-V product, as the premium luxury version of the car. I was expecting it to be quiet, smooth, um, and, and accommodating, essentially, is the best way. It is none of those things. It is not quiet. It is one of the loudest engines I've, I could ever imagine. It's buzzy, and it does not sound luxury-oriented at all, okay? It, either there needs to be more insulation, the the the... the the NVH is just not there. The drivetrain, the, the transmission slams into gears every once in a while. And, I'm, and it's terrifying. I'm like, did I break something when it does this? Especially at low speeds. And I, I think this is the biggest issue with with gears, uh, with gearboxes that have many, many speeds. This is a 10-speed automatic transmission. Usually those low, those early three or four gears just feel like like a mess. You know, you've. You, I think you've. We've discussed this in the past. I think Toyota's eight-speed used to have um, some stumbling issues at low at lower speeds and early gears. And I feel the same thing going on with this Cadillac. Um, and then, just as you mentioned, it never seemed excited or or oriented to give me the power the power and the and the delivery that I needed it to be. Which is a huge shame because the rest of the product is actually pretty decent. Um, I think the 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 interior is. Nicely laid out. I think the my model, this premium luxury model, has really um, attractive looking seats and uh, a well, you know, a, 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 an attractive interior for sure. And the exterior is quite nice as well. It, it doesn't look small, which I think is great for an entry level product like this. You know, sometimes I think when you look at the CLA or the A class or even the, the that two series that you mentioned or an A3, there's something about them that look miniaturized, that look kind of childish and not. Um, attractive and not high end, and this doesn't have that same visual appeal. Do you know what I mean? So, do you think that? Yeah, I, I do. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking back to what you said about the transmission. Do you think this is something that could be fixed with software? I think so. I think eventually. Um, I maybe I, it just needs to go through a. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like that burn-in per- period. <laughs> Break-in period. Break-in period. I don't oh, know man. about that. I mean, how many miles were on your car? Um. 500. Okay. So maybe. Yeah. But still. It's, it's fresh. But still. <laughs> I mean, transmission break-in is not really a thing <laughs> that you hear about compared yeah. to motor break-in. So, and for different reasons. I don't know. It's like, why why are these companies okay with releasing products that are clearly not as smooth as they could be in the luxury segment? Uh, it's, to, it's to net that... that um, early, I, I don't know if it's like an early adopter or entry level, but this isn't exactly a cheap car. I think my model came in at at least forty thousand uh, dollars, forty three, I think, with all the packages. And I don't know. I, I just don't think it's it's not indicative of what a Cadillac or a luxury product is capable of being. When I drove the CT5 um, V, I was actually pretty impressed with the handling. Um, I thought the motor could have used a little bit more work and, the, and other elements there, but I liked the interior. I liked the feeling of being in it. Um, and then when you drive the the Escalade, you really know that you're driving something special. It makes you feel special. People look look at you in this vehicle. Uh, they get out of your way when they see that car coming down the highway. You don't get any of that feeling with a CT4, um, unfortunately. And I think that's and worse off. You don't get any of that special feeling because of how janky some of the, the, the drive experience is. And do you think there's any way to fix this? Do you think this car can be redeemed? 
I do think it can be redeemed with a with a smoother engine, smoother application of that of that tra- of that transmission. If it's software, I think it can be done. I just don't know if that that will be done. I think we've been complaining about this 10 speed for a while. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but where else can I take this discussion? We've do- we've talked about the infotainment system in these Cadillacs, right? Which have a touchscreen, a rotary knob on the dash, and a rotary knob by the gear selector. Have we talked about this before? Yes. Why are there two rotary knobs? You can never have enough knobs, Sammy. We've Is all that so? we, we complained about Acura not having enough knobs, and now we're complaining about Cadillac having too many knobs. I think we're inconsistent at best. <laughs> okay, fine. Two knobs is, is okay. Oh, you tell me. You're the you're okay. the one with the knob complaints. I do have the knob complaints. Um, and then I think the other one I wanted to talk about is uh, I think the interior, the gauge cluster could use a little bit of a sprucing up. I think it's one of the same complaints we had about the old ATS is that uh, it looked a little cheap, um, really full of like black plastic. And this can, at certain angles, this can exhibit the same issue. But when it comes to entry level luxury, it's uh, it's a tough it's a tough thing to find exactly what is the best indication of the entire brand, right? And we've We're, often talked about how uh, it, it's al- al- almost always better to buy the best version of a non-luxury car that's right. around the same price point than it is to buy the affordable luxury car that the brand wants to use as kind of training wheels. That's a really good point. Now, I haven't driven the Mazda, the, the, the turbocharged Mazda, which I think is, from what I've under- what I've been told, is probably the best non-premium premium car right like that's the best way you can describe it well as a compact car you mean yeah okay um but in terms of midsizers i'm not sure that even they they can keep up with this too there's a there's a divide so uh, what are your final thoughts about the car is there anything else that you wanted to mention about uh about the ct4 they're almost it's like it feels like they're 70 percent, 75 percent of the way to what this car should be and i really hope that they figure it out real soon fair enough Fair enough. So, um, but I do want to start talking about another piece of news that came out this week that I think will will spur some really good discussion. It's from Volvo. We've been talking about Volvo a little bit because you drove the the XC40 P8 Recharge. Well, now they're just they're they're Volvo has uh, revealed a sister to that product. It's called the C40 Recharge, which is essentially a coupe like hatchback. Of the of the XC40, yeah, it's like a less useful version of the XC40 with more awkward styling. I think that's maybe the best way to put it. It looks a lot in profile. It looks very similar to the to the Polestar 2. Okay, it, to me, the the vehicle kind of seems awkward and kind of gangly and smaller inside. And I really like the look of the XC40, so it's not necessarily something I would go for. But I'm not going to get too deep into the XC40 because we just did an episode on that. So if you want to know what we think about the XC40, just dial back. I think it's two weeks and uh, we have a whole segment on it. Okay. So here's what we want to talk about. Um, Volvo says that the C40 will be only available to purchase online. Not just the C40, Sammy. All of of their products? All of its electric vehicles will be online only. And they are hoping to be fully electric by 2030, which is nine years from now. So in a sense, Volvo is saying that by 2030, you won't be able to go into a dealership and buy a Volvo uh, because there won't be any dealerships, I guess. But my main problem with – my main issue with this statement is 
If Volvo was really serious about its electric cars, you would be able to buy them anywhere Volvo sold vehicles. You would be able to walk into a dealership, say, I want an electric car. You'd be able to walk in and see one on the floor, not know that you wanted one, and then go home with one. You would be able to be upsold by a a salesman into buying an electric car that you didn't go there to buy in the first place. (laughs) Basically, their dealerships are their largest sales channel Online sales, I'm assuming, are their tiniest sales channel. And by saying, all of our, we're, we're committed to electric cars, but guess what? You can only buy them online. Really just right. proves how non-serious Volvo is about its electric car initiative. They paid, the, they paid lip service um, and just credited themselves in the same sentence, right? Like, they said, we want to be fully electric by 2030. That's a great idea. They're like, we're committed to being electric. Great. And then they said, the only way you will buy electric cars is through an online website. Not great. This is not how we buy very expensive products like cars. No. Right? It, it, we need but to it's, see, it's, we need to touch, we need to... And not only that, I want... I need to feel that. It's at not, the same t- sorry, sorry, go on. At the same time, if you've ever been in a dealership, Ben, lately, ever, yeah, it's, it's the I worst have. experience it's, of, of somebody's life, I it's, think. It's not you, great. But it's me, as if you want something and the people there just don't want to give it to you sometimes. Or they want to see how badly you want it um, financially and time. Yeah, it's like it's like being hazed. Time. It's like being yeah. hazed. But, so but, I understand their um, – I, I kind of – from as a, on the consumer end, removing the dealership is, a, is an important part because I think the dealership – the reputation of dealerships in general, not just yours down the street and not just the, the ones in this country, but like I think everyone hates dealerships. I think that has become a, a common complaint with any car buyer these days is the headache and the, and the dissatisfaction they have with going to a dealership, be it to buy a car or to get service done. They just do not feel the quality of service and – for many people, just going online and getting th- something ordered or whatever it may be is a far more satisfying or less uh, frustrating experience than going to a dealership. Can you imagine that the experience I, I, that I'm reading here, the experience of going to a dealership has gotten so bad that for one of the biggest financial commitments that a person will make, they may just do it sight unseen. Yeah, I understand all of that. I understand that the the dealership experience is is terrible in a lot of ways. But that's not what I'm taking an issue with. I'm taking an issue with a company telling us that it's committed to something and then not putting it in its largest sales channel. If If your sales channels are a problem, if they're bad, you need to fix them. You need to fix the dealership experience or offer something different. For me, it's not even a question of I need to touch it before I buy it. It's a question of you don't sell anything online and now you're telling us you're going to sell this online and this is super important to you when your entire sales apparatus is geared around doing something completely different. That to me is a contradiction. Well, they got to start somewhere, right? Sure. So put it in dealerships and sell it online. But by making exclusively online, you're really cu- undercutting your message that it's it's something that your company actually believes in. <laughs> it's it is weird. You're right. I mean, <laughs> that is funny. I think that's funny. It's weird. I don't know. I think that I will stand by what I said. I think the dealership experience is broken. The problem is, I think you're forced to sell. You're forced to buy a car through a dealership. I believe. Yeah, there's a lot of places. Well, the thing is, in the U.S., there are a lot of uh, areas, or I don't know if there's a lot of them, but there are enough population centers where the states don't allow direct sales from a manufacturer. 
So that's, that's why the problem. That's why the dealership model persists. And some companies have tried to get around this by having dealerships that they own themselves, and that didn't mm-hmm. go well either. So there hasn't been a really good model. Uh, Tesla sells directly in a bunch of ways, but they're not doing it at a huge level. I mean, Volvo wouldn't be doing it at a huge level either. But um, it's... You know, in Canada, Genesis sells directly to uh, consumers. Yes, because Genesis wanted to do that in the U.S., but then they found out that they had a whole bunch of Hyundai dealers who were like, why am I not getting a Genesis franchise? And then they had a legal battle on their hands, and that nixed that plan for them. So uh, there's a lot of built-in institutional stuff that surrounds dealerships that's going to be very hard to get around. Um, But, you know... I have to believe that if Volvo thought that its electric cars were going to be huge volume drivers and profit centers, they would try to sell them every single way they could. And the fact that they're making them online only really shows us that they're like, yeah, we don't expect to sell many of these. I mean, what else is online only when also described as a super important product? Like even not in the automotive industry, are there a lot of like if you want to get something that's very important to somebody – you have to find the you have to find, you have to get it in their hands in every way possible. So you're saying is there are there sales channels that aren't that don't have retail, right? Like a physical retail presence for for an entire segment of product. I'm yeah. sure there's some that we're not aware of, but, but I mean, off you know I I used to I I used to buy like clothes from a, from a, a a shop I think an online only shop called Frank and Oak, and then they made a bunch of physical locations. And yeah, I thought I've those actually been to a physical location, and they're I, cool. They're I great. Bought a coat there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Are we wearing the same coat? I'm not wearing a coat right now, Sammy. How do you not get freezing while you, you don't get cold while doing your podcast? Well, I closed the door. Okay. So, and, and I thought that was, you know, that's evolution. That's like progress. You have to get it in as many people's, you know, they were a small company. They got bigger. They wanted to get in more people, this, their items into more people's hands, right? Sure. But now I think they're closing their retail shops again. So I guess that ends that conversation. Womp womp. Oh, no. <laughs> well, Sammy, uh, speaking of conversations, if people wanted to go back in time and hear our previous conversations and maybe find out what we thought about the Volvo XC40 recharge, how would they do that? Okay, first of all, they can't go back in time unless there's some sort of time traveler, tra- time traveler or they have a time machine or something. But they can go to our website and it... You know, it kind of feels like you're going back in time when you go through our archive of all of our old episodes. There's at least 200 episodes to go through and catch up on and hear all of the inside jokes like the performance sound pleasure thing. Oof. You forgot about that, didn't you? I'm, so I, all It's you always to, in the back of my mind. <laughs> all you need to do is go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, um, and you'll see all of our old episodes there, as well as photos and links to a bunch of the stories that we've written about the cars that we're talking about. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us and uh, give your opinions on our opinions or tell <laughs> us that we've done something wrong or if you have a question or if you just want to talk because Sammy is always open for that at all hours of the day, you can get in touch with us in a couple of ways. There's a form to fill out on the on the website. Sammy, did you mention that? No, I didn't mention the form. You mentioned the form. And if you don't feel like doing that, you can email me the old-fashioned way, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. You can also find us on social media. Sammy is on the cesspool that is Twitter. You can find him there at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Or you can find me on Instagram, which is much more friendly, um, at HuntingBenjamin. So, Ben, what are you going to be driving next week? Next week, I am going to be driving a – oh, my goodness. What is it? It's an Acura TLX, Sammy. Very neat. Um, and I'll be driving. Uh oh. Um, a <laughs> Nissan. 
<laughs> a Nissan Sentra. Okay. All right. Yeah. I know you're psyched about I don't the think, Sentra. We haven't talked about the Sentra, I think, in our the entirety of our podcast. But you're psyched about it. You've been talking to me about it, and that's what's important. Yeah, the Sentra's been getting a lot of hype lately, so I need to figure out what's the deal here. Anyway, so you'll want to check in with us next week. Um, do we have a bonus episode coming? I don't know, Sammy. Let's make it a mystery. Let's make it a mystery. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.